0: Hello, this is Russell Davies in a series inviting performers and writers at the top of their game from any or all of the entertainment disciplines to tell us how they see the art they practice. And today I'm delighted to welcome Miss Petula Clark, And we'll be discussing the art of piloting a great career through not four or five decades, which would be remarkable enough, but currently into its eighth decade. That is a stunning thought. Do you you ever pat yourself on the back of a morning and say, you know, good for me, because it's really all gone terribly well?
1: Good, heavens. No, 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 no. I don't, I, you know, I don't think of it like that. It's, you know, I, I just get on with it, really. You know, it's it's day-to-day living. That's what it is.
0: And it's always been the same, I suppose. You were born almost into it and uh, carried on that way.
1: Well, I don't know if I was born into it, Russell. You know, I, I, you know, I come from a very sort of ordinary family with no connections, no influence, no money. I just like to sing. You know, I'm part Welsh. Mm. You know, my mother was Welsh. And um, I spent a lot of time in Wales where everybody sings. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I I sang for the first time in public in chapel in a little village called uh, Abberkaned or Pentrabach, depending on what side of the river Taff you're standing on. And (laughs) that was my introduction to music. In fact, one of the songs on the new album, um, I'm not plugging the album, incidentally. but
0: Oh, I will be, don't <laughs> worry.
1: <laughs> no, but it just so happens that one of the songs um, on it is called Reflections, and I wrote the lyric for it. And it talks about the beginnings of my career, which were really in, in Wales. Mm.
0: Your father would have liked to have been an actor, isn't
1: that right? Oh, yes. My father was um, a very good-looking man. He was a sort of Errol Flynn double, if you like. I don't know if any of your listeners remember Errol Flynn, but he was kind of handsome with the moustache, you know, the look of the day. He was a sort of cross between Errol Flynn and Ronald Coleman. He had always wanted to be an actor and was never allowed to. Uh, His parents thought it was a rather sort of disgraceful profession. Uh, I'm not sure a lot of people think so still. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, he wasn't allowed. So when I came along and showed a bit of talent, you know, I could sing a bit. Um, he decided that he wanted me to become something. But, I mean, he had no way of doing it. But he was in the army, I sang for the troops, and little by little it just went on from there.
0: Well, talking of singing a bit, there were one or two technical advantages you always had, weren't there? For example, and this shows up from your very earliest recordings onwards, you always had a very true voice. I mean, there are lots of interestingly textured voices in the world, but not all of them have the sureness of pitch that you've always had.
1: You know what, Russell, I think the, the basics that you have to have to be able to perform, you have to have good pitch. That means singing in tune, and that's the, <laughs> you have to do that. Mm. And a sense of tempo, a sense of rhythm, and I had both of them.
0: I've read that you don't practice much. In the theatre, for example, there'd be all kinds of warbling going on backstage <laughs> as the other principals warmed up their voices, but you never needed to do that.
1: No, I was in L.A. recently for the um, Grammy Museum and did a thing there. And it was sort of a bit like the actor's studio, you know, they interview you and then you have question and answer with the audience. And uh, Richard Carpenter was there, you know, Karen and Richard, and I know Richard quite well. And the interviewer asked me if I warmed up and I said no, and I felt rather guilty about it. As you say, you know, when I was doing Sunset Boulevard, for instance, on tour, I would hear the... The other singers warming up la 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 Well that stuff and I was doing my makeup and I thought, Well, maybe I should be doing this, you know. And I really don't know how to do it. And then Richard, who had seen this interview, came up to me afterwards, he said, You know, Karen never warmed up. He said, You know, either you've got it or you haven't so yeah, I think that's true. To be honest, I can confess this now, that my first song when I go on stage is my warm-up. So that's that's mm. when I'm doing it. I do it right there on stage.
0: You virtually discovered the Carpenters, didn't you? I mean, you certainly recommended them to uh, producers and so on.
1: Well, yeah. Uh, actually, I saw Herb Alpert recently while I was in L.A. And... Uh, The connection is that I was in Los Angeles for the opening of Goodbye, Mr. Ships, you know, the the movie that I was in. And there was a dinner afterwards. And, you know, when the music, dinner music is good, I can't concentrate on what I'm eating. And when the music is bad, I can't concentrate on what I'm eating. So uh, the music was good. There there was this group playing, and I thought, well, I've got to find out who these people are. So I got up from the table and, and went over, and there was this guy playing piano and this girl singing behind her drum kit. And I went over and I said, you know what, you are really great. My name's Petula Clark. And Karen just went, hey, man. <laughs> she was a real kind of, you know, muso-type girl. And she said, yeah. hey, man, Petula Clark. Went... Anyway, I said, no, that's not important. I just want to tell you that you're great, and I'm going to have a word with her Alpert about you. So I went over to to the table next to mine, and I said... Herb, you've got to listen. You've got to listen to these people. And the next thing I knew, of course, uh, I guess maybe a month or two later, they'd made their first record. So, yes, I'm very pleased to say I was responsible for that.
0: Well, there's no better indicator of the way you're still moving on now than your recent CD titled Lost in You. You must be pleased at the way that turned out because it's surprised people so much, the style of it has.
1: John Williams, this is not the American John Williams, OK? Mm-hmm. This is our John Williams a charming Englishman. And I had worked with him before in the studio. And we went in and the first song we did was a song called Cut, Copy Me, which I absolutely adore. And it was sort of different for me. And I just went in and did it. There was no trick to it. You know, I just went in and sang it. And it turned out very well. It was a good mix and we put some little effects on it. And then John said, well, why don't we go in? It was actually Sony who said, let's go in Mm -hmm. and do some more. And we just did. There was no kind of master plan behind it and there was nothing like, oh, let's try and make her sound contemporary because that doesn't work.
0: But it does have a kind of hushed atmosphere about it that unites the new and the old songs that are in it, seems to me. You're
1: right, yes, of course. But that's more to do with this tiny studio we were working in. It was like Mm -hmm. a little sort of Wendy house at the end of John's garden and there was a window in it you know the studio with a window and my uh, vocal mic was right in front of the window and i could see birds and flowers and the cat playing in the garden you know this is mm. this is a different feel i don't know if that had anything to do with the way the record sounds but it was intimate working with young musicians who had no Vision of what I should sound like. They just recorded me, and uh, mm-hmm. it just worked. You know, don't try to figure out what magic is. You
0: know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, don't ask the question. No, That's don't ask right. the question. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, I know that temperamentally you're never anxious to rush back into the past, but some things are inescapable, and one of them is your huge hit, "Downtown," which reemerges here in a quite different guise. Although the the lyric has stayed the same, hasn't it?
1: Well, you know, I didn't want to do it. You know, John said. We need to do some covers. And so, you know, we did Imagine, which, you know, I had a reason to do that because of John. We had Crazy, which I absolutely love. And then he said, why don't we do Downtown? I said, no, no, let's not touch it. You know, everything has been done to Downtown. You know, I have re-recorded Downtown a couple of times. Leave it alone. He said, oh, okay," And I had to go to Paris to do something. And I came back. A couple of days later, and I went into the studio, and and John said, uh, "Sit down, have a listen to this." You know, and he pressed the button, and he played this track. I said, that's, "That's that's very nice. What is it?" He said, "It's downtown." I said, "You are kidding, aren't you?" And he said, "No, no." He said, J- "Just get up and sing it," which I did, and it was the most extraordinary experience. It was like singing a new song. The tempo is different, the feel of it is different and it just made me sing it a little differently. And, you know, I never thought in any case that Downtown was a jolly song, you know, about going out and having a good time. There's always an image going on in my mind when I sing. And, you know, if you listen to the lyrics, you know, it's when you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. It's talking about loneliness, in fact. And on this version, you really sense it. And I think it's very beautiful, this way.
0: Yes. It's a far more intimate and perhaps involving song than than ever it was before, it seems to
1: me. Yes, I, I confess I haven't sung it yet on stage.
0: <laughs> ah, yes.
1: I did a, a UK tour recently and, you know, I did quite a few of the songs from the New See on stage and they work very well. I... Don't think I'm quite ready to do downtown that way on stage. People who come to see me and they want to hear the old songs, you know, they want to hear them the way they're used to hearing them. Maybe I'm going to Australia soon. I might try it out over there
0: <laughs> it's funny isn't it how some songs speak to one artist who can see all kinds of things in it and find new things in it as you have but but not to another do you know frank sinatra's downtown it's a very ill-tempered performance
1: yeah i was in the studio when he was recording it actually yeah.
0: really yeah. were you
1: and we both knew that it wasn't working and uh, he was a bit cross with the whole thing.
0: <laughs> well, he was, because he actually inserts sort of noises yeah. to signal his distaste for it. I don't well, know. you
1: know, some songs don't swing. You know, Frank is, sings swing very well. You know, he ne- never sang rock and roll or whatever you like to call that. You know, and downtown is da 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 Anyway, we went, out, we went out afterwards and had a very nice dinner. So,
0: In general, did Tony Hatch happen to write the kind of melody you liked from the start or did he sense what you liked and and write that sort of thing, especially for you? Which way around did that work?
1: It's very interesting. I, 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 you'd have to ask Tony because mm. when I first heard Downtown, it wasn't finished and I was living in Paris at the time and he came over to talk about the next French Session, you know, because Tony used to supervise the French sessions. He didn't choose the songs, obviously, but he used to supervise it. And I recorded everything in London anyway. All the French performers were recording in in London at the time, because it was so much better in London. I you know Serge Gainsbourg, Johnny Johnny Hallyday, all the people. They all used to record there. Anyway, Tony came over to Paris to talk about the next session in French. And we were having a cup of tea, and he said, you know, you really should record again in English. And I said, well, you know, find me the song and I'll do it. And he played me downtown on piano. He didn't have the finished lyric, but I loved the melody. I loved the idea. I said, I'll do that, you know, finish it and let's do that. And two weeks later, we did. And so I don't know. is chicken and the egg. I really don't know. I'm not sure that he actually wrote it for me. Some say that he wrote it for a, a group, um, but in any case, it finished up with me, and um, <laughs> <clears throat> I loved it right away. And the great thing about Tony is that he just went on writing great, great songs, you know, like Indeed. I Know a Place, we got the Grammy for Downtown, and, and next one to I Know a Place, and then, you know, Don't Sleep in the Subway, you Couldn't Live Without Your Love, all those great songs.
0: I would imagine, and this is only my theory, that if you needed examples of how to go your own way in the choice of material and how you were going to do it, there were a couple of musical friends you had in France who absolutely went their own way, two two very different men. Jacques Brel, one of the famous Belgians, of course, and Serge Gainsbourg, whom you've mentioned. Could you tell us about... Braille first, if you would, because he's a figure revered in the French-speaking countries as more than a singer, even more than a storyteller. He's almost a sort of philosopher or something of that
1: kind. Well, he was a poet too, you know. Mm. And um, Yeah, I was on tour with, with Jacques in Belgium, so I got to see him perform every night. I got to know him, and that alone was an education. And he, at the end of the tour, he gave me a song. So, yeah, I mean, Jacques is is still, uh, you know, an icon for, for everybody, really, not just in his own country, in France, but for the rest of the world. In fact, I've just uh, recorded, if you go away, you know, the Rod McEwan version yeah. of Ne me quitte pas. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think it's better in French, but, you know, there you go. Um mm, yeah. and you. <clears throat> Yes. <laughs> we won't tell Rod. Um, no, right. And, of course, Serge Gainsbourg, whom I met, again in the apartment in Paris, he came to see me about a song that he had written for me and he was very, very shy. And so was I because, you know, I adored him anyway well before all the The Galsburg happened.
0: I'm surprised to hear he was shy because I think we rather ran away from him at the time because he looked so louche and his, his taste for sexy songs seemed un-English at the time.
1: Yes, but this was before that. You know, he really changed his image and when I met him, he wasn't yet... Gainsbourg, you know which yeah, yeah uh, he was mm-hmm. Serge Gainsbourg you know. mm-hmm. and um I loved his voice he was always mm. a bit strange but I liked that you know and mm. uh, he came to the apartment to to sort of sell me a, a song and we were very shy so I mean he wasn't saying much and I wasn't saying much so I thought hm mm, uh would you like something to drink Serge how about a cup of tea and he turned that down uh, of course uh mm. I said, how about a beer? Oh, we oui, une bière. So I brought a beer in and he put it on the piano and spilled it into my lovely little grand piano. Mm-hmm. And that's not good for a piano. No, no. He was absolutely devastated. And he went back to his publisher and he said, well, that's it. You know, I've lost this one. <laughs> She's not going to do the song. But I did. He wrote several songs for me and uh, I had a few hits. Mm. Um, But, you know, I wasn't one of his ladies, shall we say.
0: Right. But did you write with him at all? Because that's an underrated aspect to your career, because when you add them all up, you've written quite a lot. Is that an extra buzz to see a song of yours take off?
1: Oh, well, of course. Um, Mm. No, I was writing with um, somebody called Pierre Delanois, who was really, truly one of the great lyric writers. And I wrote a song called que la Petula," which is a kind of play on my name, and mm-hmm. became a huge hit. and And he wrote the lyrics, the French lyrics for oh, "This is my song," "C'est ma chanson." But he did so many amazing things. He wrote the lyrics for all the, the Bob Dylan songs, for instance, which is not easy, you know, when you have like a poet like Bob Dylan. You know, how do you write that in French? Well, you write poetry you know he he absolutely pierre rewrote the songs and uh, i worked a lot with pierre he was wonderful
0: Now, I'm not as familiar with the French scene now as I was in the 60s when you were such a colossal part of it. People forget that too. But this is, I think, a song of Gainsbourg's For You that's still popular today. You must tell me if it isn't, but I think it is. It's called Lagadou. Oh, yes. Which is one of several French words for mud. How did this come about? Is it slush? Is it (laughs) right?
1: More like slush. Um, How did it come about? Well, he just wrote it for me. And yeah. um, I can't remember now if he was in the studio when I did this. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't easy doing Serge's songs. He, he plays with words, which is mm. part of his success. And you have to get your, you have to get your teeth around it. So, you know.
0: yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, this is still
1: very popular.
0: Is it true that you were advised not to get too good at spoken French for fear of spoiling, you know, the innocent appeal of your of your English way of singing?
1: Oh, no, nobody said that to me. No, no, no. Mm. i never had any advice like that. In any case, I couldn't even hear my accent. I didn't know I had a funny accent. I think that's what the French people first liked about me. They thought it was hysterically funny and charmant. Uh, mm. And uh, that's what worked. But I have moments when I speak French very well and moments when it just... I can't mm. get it out, you know, and... Uh, I don't do anything. You know, Jane Birkin has a very charming uh, accent when she sings in French, but I think she works on it, you know, because she's, uh, li- <laughs> she's been living in France so long and she still makes those things about saying le chaise or le tar yes. and stuff like that. Now, come on, you know, come on, Jane. Mm. <laughs> we all know that <laughs> one. <laughs> but, no, I adore her. She um She she has great charm when she sings in French. Yeah,
0: when you join a a whole new culture, as you did then, you have to learn it as you go. And and in show business, you have to learn a different star system. The French treat their idols differently from us, and the Americans differently from anybody else. But luckily, you'd grown used to that process from a very young age. The stars were your friends and colleagues from the beginning. In movies, for example, Peter Ustinov directed you early, didn't he? Yes. And you were in London town with Sid Field. Now, there's someone who was a big, big star in his day, but hardly known at all now. You have to tell people that he was a comedian.
1: Yes. Well, I don't think the film was very good, but, you know, Mm. yes, I was certainly in it with him and, and I played his daughter. I didn't sing in it, although it was a musical. Um, It was the first
0: Technicolour film, wasn't it, that we'd done over here? Yeah,
1: yeah. Mm. Um, And Eustonoff I adored. I absolutely adored him from the first moment I met him. We made this film Vice Versa, which was Tony Newley's first film, and we were both kids in it. In the studios, Olivier was making Hamlet, and he had these big notices up on, on the door saying, no visitors, stay out, and all that kind of thing. And so Ustinov put a sign up on our studio saying, Visitors welcome, come on in. And he had a piano on the set. And between takes, we would would be having a party. And I absolutely adored him. And I adored him for a long, long time because he lived in Switzerland. I used to see him and we used to do things for UNICEF. I really loved him. He was a brilliant man.
0: And you were also part of, well, well, this sounds pretentious, but I think it's true, after the war in the late 40s, Britain... It had to get back its sense of family life, which had been threatened and often broken up by the war. But those those huggett's movies, with Jack Warner as dad and you as one of the daughters, they were loved by the public because that sense of the family was important to them. They needed to, to learn it again, in a sense.
1: Yes, I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, we just went into the studio, a rather grotty little studio in Islington, and we did three in a row, and uh, we became... A almost like a real family, you know. And uh, Mm. I absolutely loved doing them. And as you say, they were very popular. And maybe you're right, there was a need to sort of recreate the family atmosphere.
0: Were you thought of as an actress who sang in those days? Was that your feeling about how it would go?
1: I don't really know. I was put under contract to the rank organisation as an actress because we weren't making musicals anyway. You know, they were far too expensive. And Mm. so I was a singer... I was going out and doing concerts and variety, if you like, all that kind of thing, radio as a singer. But in movies, I was an actress. So, mm. yeah, I had two careers
0: going on. Well, I do want to mention the recording that turned it around for so many, including me. And the thing about this was that boys of my age and time didn't usually go for a record like this because it was girly. But this was so good and sung with such accuracy and and relish that we classed it in the children's request programmes of the time as up there with the Cowboy and Indian songs that we usually like best. I still don't think this, as a performance, could reasonably have been bettered in any way. I'm talking about The Little Shoemaker. (laughs) Oh, that's rather sweet. And there was something prophetic about that as well because it was, of course, a French song by it origin. It was,
1: it
0: was. Yes. Le Petit Le, Cordonnier. Le, Le, Le Petit Cordonnier, yes, yes. I didn't know that at the time. No, I did didn't you? either, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you get to be such a finished artist as that by the age of, what, 21 when you recorded that, I think? Well, right. then... It's just perfect, I think, as a I don't know.
1: I'm terrible at dates. I thought maybe I was younger than that, but you're probably right.
0: Mm. I don't mm. know.
1: You know, I just always loved singing. You know, making records was a bit difficult at the time. You know, it, it's so different now. It's a very relaxed kind of thing now but going into a recording studio in those days was quite quite scary.
0: Who were your musical directors? Do any names stand out in those days, or is it a bit of a blur?
1: I don't know if that was Peter Knight at the time, whom I mm. adored.
0: Malcolm but, you Lockyer you made with some, didn't you? Right,
1: right, yeah. right, right. But, you know, the whole process was so... You know, you had live musicians, of course, you know. Uh, there was no trickery. You just went in and recorded live with the orchestra. Um, and we were not allowed to go into the control room, because there were gentlemen in in white overalls standing up at the controls. You know, (laughs) you weren't allowed in there, like scientists in there. So it wasn't exactly relaxed. But, you know, the whole business of singing, you know, really the best part about being in this business is the performing. That's what I like best.
0: You'd recently made the movie The Card with Alec Guinness, because... Although your film career was a sort of stop-start thing across the years, wasn't it? It was When you did make one, it was every one a coconut, wasn't it? Because you always had these tip-top leading men. Guinness was absolutely tops at that time. Mm,
1: yes, I had one or two... Wilfred Pickles wasn't exactly
0: <laughs> top,
1: and, and well. Richard Hearn, whom, whom I liked. But mm. Wilfred Pickles had his wife sitting there, Mabel, by the camera when I oh, was gosh. doing my close-ups, and she would time how much screen time I had. You know, she... Yeah, it was a bit like that. Um, That's like
0: George Formby and Beryl, isn't it? (laughs) Maybe, yes.
1: But yes, of course, Alec Guinness was wonderful. But, you know, it was on and off. You know, I was a contract artist, so I'd sometimes get the call on a Friday saying, Petula needs to be in the studio on Monday, and I didn't even know what it was. You know, I'd turn up and just do it. You know, I Know Where I'm Going was like that too.
0: Yeah, you know, It was
1: a small but role in a, in a quite a good movie.
0: And then much later, of course, you have the Peter O'Toole in Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Mm-hmm. And, and surely topmost in the musical sense, Fred Astaire yeah. in Finian's Rainbow. Was that Fred's last musical? It was his last dancing musical anyway, I think. Yes, it? it
1: was, yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, he, he was very concerned about it. He didn't think he was dancing well. Um, he was a perfectionist anyway. I adored Fred. I mean, we got on really well. He... And Francis Coppola, who directed it, we were like the three musketeers. I mean, we, we were together all the time. We were shooting out of doors a lot. Almost all of uh, Finian's Rainbow was shot on the back lot at Warner Brothers. Apart from the scene, you know, the dance scene, the love scene, all, all that that was done in studio. But The rest was done outside and it was very hot, very difficult to do. And uh, the weekends, uh, most of us would just disappear into our air-conditioned homes and <laughs> recuperate. And Fred stayed at the studio. Fred lived in the studio the weekend, slept in his dressing room and worked with his choreographer because he was, you know, not so sure of himself anymore as a dancer. I hmm. I learnt a lot from Fred about, you know,
0: the work. He had been famous for quite a punishing thoroughness uh, in rehearsal. Was that still to be seen or was he... didn't have the energy for that, he'd kept it for the, for the performance?
1: No, he worked all the time.
0: You know, it, mm. you know,
1: it was a difficult film to make. Finian's Rainbow is a difficult show anyway. It's it's a yes. mixture of, you know, sort of fairy tale stuff and, and quite serious... Uh...
0: Written by Yip Harberg and Burton Lane for Finian's Rainbow, which co-starred my guest Petula Clark as Sharon McClonagan, wasn't it? I think that yes, was the name. <laughs> Irish, yes.
1: and I remember the producer, Joe Langdon, whom I liked very much. But when I recorded Glockamara, I sang it the way I felt it should be sung, and Francis loved it. And then Joe came up and said, you know, I don't know. I don't know about this. I said, well, what's wrong? What's wrong with it? He said, "Why well, can't you make it sound a little more Jewish? <laughs> I said, well, it, uh, it's Irish, you know. Yeah. I, I know what he was trying to say. He wanted me to sell it more, you know. Um, right. But I decided to keep it that way, and that's the way France. That actually, Francis Coppola shot it. He actually had the camera on his shoulder shooting it, which was sort of against all the rules in Hollywood. Lelouch had been doing it for a long time at, um, in, in France, but, but Francis wanted to shoot me singing this song and you can actually see it when when you watch the movie you can tell that there's a different quality to it to the rest of the movie
0: yes of course he went on to make very different kind of yes. music. later on yes, <laughs> yes. Well, yip harbour of course the lyricist was jewish but he took quite a lot of trouble to make that lyric irish so i'm, I'm sure you were right it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: yes well you know there had been other performances of it on stage where it was like how are things in Glockamoran? You know, like... Yeah.
0: yeah <laughs> well, yeah. I
1: wasn't, wasn't going to do that.
0: <laughs> no, 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 way. no. Well, that's a standard, more or less, that song, and you've sung your fair share of them. But unlike many artists, you haven't given us your version of everything. You know, there isn't a string of albums. Petula Clark sings Cole Porter or the Gershwins no. or in Berlin and so on. But when you've done them, they are among my favourites. And one album I love to introduce to people because it really isn't well known now is one you made in Hollywood i suppose it must have been with billy may among others and, oh wow uh, now you're Rilke. really going back
1: yeah. <laughs> yes yes that was sort of way before all the tony hatch things yeah um, yes it, it yes. was it was a good experience so that was a different hollywood i can tell you that
0: well yes i'm sure it it's was it's changed a it? lot yeah i knew billy may he was quite a rumbustious character yeah. i hope he was behaving himself that day in the studio uh, kind of or... yes all uh, right <laughs> <laughs> from the ill-fated musical Swing in the Dream, but a wonderful ballad by Eddie DeLange and Jimmy Van Heusen, and wonderfully sung by Petula Clark In a voice as sweet as chapel bells, they used to say when you were small, although I, I don't think I ever heard a chapel bell anything <laughs> like as sweet as that. They're <laughs> usually a bit cracked.
1: I think that was a letter from a soldier who heard me over the BBC, it was, you know, the forces service, and that was a letter from him, describing yes. how he felt
0: about my voice. Which is how you started in broadcasting, and amazingly, you're... First appearance, isn't it? Uh, it yeah. still exists. It still can be heard. You're I think singing? so. Yeah. Mighty like a Row. Mm-hmm.
1: I don't think I sing like that anymore. You know, I mean, <laughs> no.
0: Uh, you
1: know, voices change over the years, and it's true what you said about my experience in France changed my way of looking at a song. You know, because I heard Piaf sing over there for the first time. That was an amazing thing, and then I was on tour with Brel, So there's another way of approaching singing a song but when i went to the states i was learning again and i'm still learning now come to that but singing is not just a matter of getting the notes out it's touching it with something that's going on inside you and that's very important to learn
0: yes so if there is no inner drama in you you're not going to be able to bring it out that's right you, you have to carry that around with you which must be quite exhausting
1: well, not really, no. But but you know, it's the same thing for an actor. You know, an, an actor to be able to express all the different things in life, he has to know something about life.
0: Yes, indeed. Yes. The the one phase you hadn't been through was on stage, long runs on stage, concert stage. Yes, of course. But committing yourself to a run of a stage musical, you hadn't made a speciality of that. But then you did, with remarkable results. I'd I'd be interested to know which of the three biggest shows you enjoyed the most i mean maria in the sound of music maria von trapp said you were the best maria ever and, and blood brothers you and the cassidy's wasn't it turned round that show completely on broadway your mm-hmm. first time there and you've played norma desmond in sunset Boulevard quite a lot more times than anybody else yes so there's there's a lot to be said for all of them
1: yes well you know i didn't want to do the sound of music for me it was julie and that's it you know uh, so i said no thank you And they just talked me into it. They said they wanted a different kind of Maria. I said, well, yeah, okay. First of all, you're going to have to bring all the songs down, (laughs) a a tone. Mm. (laughs) I'm not a soprano. Then it'll be more earthy. And I think that's what uh, the real Maria von Trapp liked about it. It was a hard show to do. It's physically quite hard. You know, first of all, I had to lug those kids around, you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Some of them
1: were almost bigger than me. Um, mm. uh, no, I love doing it. I love doing it, of course. Blood Brothers, there again, I had to be talked into it.
0: Uh, quite strenuously, as I understand it, from Bill Kenwright. I mean, it yes. took a long time to... Why did you finally give way? Because he said you were quite adamant that you didn't want to do it.
1: Well, he flew me over to New York to see the New York production because that's where it was in trouble. Yes. And, um, he had to recast it. And I wasn't mad about the show, but I thought that the American cast, the supporting actors, were really good, and there was an energy coming off the stage, which I liked. And I'd never done Broadway. Anyway, about three days went by, you know Bill trying to talk me into it, and I think he'd had enough. <laughs> no, I don't mm, blame mm. him. and we we were having a drink in a bar in this hotel overlooking Times Square, I remember, and we were talking about something else. And I just looked up and said, I'll do it. He said, what? Mm-hmm. I said, I'll do it. And that was it. There comes a moment when you have to say yes or no. And the idea of working with the American cast excited me. I, I thought we could make this into something somewhat different. And we did. And that was great. And then I went out on tour with it afterwards, after Broadway. And then I came back to england and got the call um from trevor nunn's office and i had seen sunset on broadway with glenn close and i thought it was magnificent but i i wasn't particularly moved by it i thought it was a rather cold show also i had met up with her afterwards and she said patula she said you know if you ever do play this role don't try doing it more than eight months you'll go mad i said okay all right well you know I had no intention of doing it anyway. But I came back to London and went to Trevor, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. And he had made up his mind I was going to do it, and I'd made up my mind I wasn't. So this was an interesting three hours, you know. And I said, what makes you think I can play this role? I've never played a really nasty person. You know, I'm always nice, you know, on stage. He said, because you're a very good actress, darling. I said, mm-hmm. well, um, I don't uh, know, no, no, Trevor. And I said, well, I can't play this. What would I bring to this role? He said, you will bring humour and vulnerability. Oh, I thought, that's, that's interesting. Um, OK. I said, wouldn't you like to hear me sung, sing a song because this is not the kind of music I do? He said, good God, no. You know? I said, I'm um, Okay, okay. (laughs) And in I plunged. And it was tough, I can tell you. It's a tough role to play. Mm. Um, And musically very different. And uh, I I had to really work on it. And I have to say, on my opening night, I must have been really, really bad in it. Because I was terrified. There's nothing like terror to really kind of mess things up.
0: I was surprised to see you in it. I must say uh, that you took it on at all, and you but you did it what two two and a half thousand times or something. That's that's yeah. a huge number. The sheer slog of that was something you hadn't really let yourself in for uh, up to that point. Did, was that a shock?
1: It is a shock, and playing somebody like that, who is so unsympathetic and. Uh, uh, you know, I've I, I, yeah, it was a stretch for me. But, you know, by the time I finished uh, the run in London and then I played it all over America on tour, I got it. I got it. I understood her and I actually loved her. And I played her with a kind of love underneath. And the last scene where she comes down the stairs, and, you know, even those of you who didn't see the show, you remember the, the thing where she comes down the stairs and she's mad you know she shot, yes. shot the leading man on <laughs> mm-hmm. and and she thinks that all the reporters are there you know because she's f- there for her big close up of course they've come to take her away um, i played it totally differently at the end of the american tour i played i took her back to being 16 again when she was a great star because they keep talking about her as being this wonderful beautiful star. But we never see her like that in the show. You know, she's turned into this weird dragon person. So I took her back. So she comes down the stairs. I'm ready for my close up. And, mm. you know, it's... it's. I think it's interesting, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if Andrew ever saw me do it that way, but that's the way I did it at the end.
0: Well, we're getting to the end, sadly. But I wanted to ask, I don't suppose I shall meet anybody who has sung more than you have, or knows more about songs and the way they work both for the performer and for the listening audience what what are your feelings about songs at this point in life what do, what do they mean to you and and humanity in general if you like
1: well singing is uh, an essential part of my being if you like i can be sort of feeling lousy or having problems in my personal life or whatever backstage and i get on stage And I have great musicians, great audience, good sound system. And there it is. It's wondrous, actually. I don't quite know how to explain it because it's a very personal experience. It's very sensual and sometimes almost touching on religion. It's very important to me. I don't know how it works. I can't explain it to you, but there it is. And... The songs, of course, are important because it's in the songs that you're able to say what you want to say. That's why I'm doing a lot more writing myself. And um, what's going on in the world? Well, I see it just the way everybody sees it. It's tough. And in some small way, I try to do something about it. And um, I have my own private ways of doing things. You know, I'm involved with several different what we call charities, but um, different things. That's a part, but when I'm on stage, I try to help. I try to communicate with people, and I think they feel less alone in their everyday trials and tribulations. And we all have them, you know, we all have them, and we have to deal with them, and uh, I try to help
0: in my own small way. Nobody had the same name as Petula Clark, and she still sounds new. Petula Clark, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you, Russell. And thanks too to my producer, Sarah Cropper. This was a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 2, online on digital radio and on 88 to 91 FM.